Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. From Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with occasional detour down a few rabbit holes, and we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. If you want to support the podcast, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash jamesbondatoz, and you can find the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to James Bond A to Z podcast where M is for more, Sir Roger Moore again. Are you ready for more? This is the second half of our special covering the life and career of the third actor to play James Bond on the big screen. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we explore the life and career of the actor who has played 007 the most times, it's our very own Robert Sterling, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. And the podcast sent James Sinjin Smythe, it's Mr. Tom Wheatley. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Hello. Um, so obviously the um, a legendary actor like Roger Moore deserves a legendary episode. So this is the second half of a two-parter. The first half, if you've listened, covered uh, Sir Roger's life and career up to and including the James Bond film of the 1970s. I think we ended on him going into tax exile. Um, and so this episode will cover Roger's 80s Bond films his personal life and his post-Bond career. With this episode, quite excitingly, we'll have wrapped up our specials that cover the six big screen Bonds. So, wow. Yeah, it's been quite That's an odyssey um, covering yeah. the six actors who played uh, Bond. And I wonder, before we finish the podcast, when we get to the letter Z, whether or not a seventh will have been announced. Yeah, if they could do it with the surname Z, that would be ideal, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would work quite well, yeah. yeah. Well, we can always... Chris Zorin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are there any actors out there called the letter Z in their surname? Well, answers on a postcard. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we did the 70s Bond, uh, Roger Moore Bond, and now we're going to do the 80s Bond. So, are you ready for more? Gimme, gimme more. Oh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, first off, we're just going to have a uh, just run through his other 80s movies. So, he did. An action film called North Sea Hijack in 1980. It was a very sort of anti-Bond. Have either of you seen this one? Yeah. Yeah, I think I spoke about it briefly last in the in the last episode, didn't I? Yeah. Um, Yeah, fantastic film. Very very clever. Very um, uh, changes changes his uh, typecasting. Yeah. Is he? He's got a cat. Is he cat obsessed? Is that? He's got a lot of cats. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it was a box office disappointment, wasn't it? It was quite a flop. 
Yeah, I think I think it's, I think that he want he wanted to do that one, or he was quite excited because it was against the typecasting that he was probably exactly. Getting. Yeah, um, but yeah. the 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 cinema going public probably weren't ready for him not playing uh, a Bond style character, so it's a bit of a tough one for yeah. him. Yeah, but it's fantastic it's film. It's very good. Um, but the the film he did after that was called The Sea Wolves, which was a World War Two film, and it it got many of the um, the cast from The Wild Geese together, back together again. And that was actually, you know, the box office seemed to take in, seemed to be better for that one. So, because he's going back to something that audiences can cope with. Um, following that, he, he did some comedies. Um, Sunday Lovers, another box office failure. Um, but The Cannibal Run, which I haven't seen, right? You've never seen but, the Cannonball Run? No, I know. And uh, looking at the cast, obviously, okay. stop the stop the podcast. <laughs> right, go off and watch it. <laughs> I can't believe you lived through the nineties, or did you live through the nineties? Yeah, you must have I done. Did, and yeah, not, I did, I never did. seen the yeah. Cannonball Run no, on TV. No, not on TV all the time. Yeah, well, cl- clearly I've just not managed to catch it. But you know, it's got Jackie Chan, Burt Reynolds, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Farrah Fawcett, and Roger Moore. Playing a character, character who thinks yes, he's Roger Moore, and he said about it, it was the hugest fun to make. And I got to drive the Aston Martin DB5, allegedly driven by Sean Connery and Goldfinger. And each in each mm. scene, I had a different female passenger alongside, very Bondian. Um, so yeah, I, pr- I probably should watch that, shouldn't I? It's sort of yeah, definitely. It's sort of the precursor to Rat Race, starring Rowan Atkinson. So um, don't you don't put me put right off? That's it. No, don't put those films together. It's it, it's got the line in it. Um, somebody starts to, starts a fight with him. I think he gets beaten up by him. But um, this guy just start, like starts having a like put his fists up, and he goes, "I must warn you, I'm Roger Moore." But of course, the joke is that he's not actually Roger Moore. Very clever. Yeah, yeah. Very clever. So uh, I just wanted to touch on other other. Things I don't know if anyone else is going to touch on this on the spitting spitting image puppet. Oh, go on. I don't know if either of you seen this sketch. You know they really played on the fact that he always said that he had his acting was pretty much eyebrows, didn't he? he you know he said it was right eyebrow raised, left eyebrow, and then the eyebrows crossed when grabbed by jaws. You know, so that was his quote. And then spitting image played on that, and the it's he he was very uh, impressed with it. Like, he thought it was quite funny. And we know Roger is happy to you know, take the mick out of himself. And so, yeah, the one of the, the sketches, it's the man with the wooden delivery is what the sketch is called. Um, it's Gosh. Roger Moore's puppet receives orders from Margaret Thatcher to kill Gorbachev. Um, it's on YouTube. You can have a look. The puppet is, as spitting images, I don't know if, People, people who Maybe are listening, explain who are for our the... transatlantic listeners what spitting yeah. image is. Spitting image is a puppet show that sends up people in the real world. So movie stars, pol- political people, musicians can be anything really. With and it, the puppets are really sort of exaggerated on features caricatures, of the, aren't they? Uh, caricatures of the yeah the real people. It, it is there's a current series going. You know, in the last couple of years as well, so they've they brought it back. But the, in the eighties, it was massive, and and that's that's like, what like a is. very offensive uh, um, Muppets. Well, with real people. Thank in. you very much for for what a segue. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so in the eighties as well, he was also asked uh, by Lou Grade, who we covered in the first episode, didn't we? His relationship with Lou Grade was that Persuaders, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Lou Grade had asked him to go and guest on the Muppet Show, and he he agreed to do it. 
you know, and he had a lot of fun on it. And he said, uh, I was rather excited by my appearance and prepared all my best Muppet jokes for when I met the team. What's green and smells of pork? Kermit's finger. Oh, God. I know. What's green and red and spins at 150 miles per hour? Kermit in a dishwasher. Let's just say they didn't appreciate them in the way they thought they might. They looked at me as though I, I was something the cat had brought in. <laughs> um, but the episode itself, he, he sings um, Talk to the Animals, yeah, which is written by Leslie Brickus. Yes. Who we've talked about in the podcast as well. Uh, go back to episode B. It's a good episode. You know, he's happy, again, happy to send himself up. Um, some nice jokes, nice interactions with the Muppets. And obviously th- there's a scene where Miss Piggy is infatuated with him. Um, so, yeah, dig dig that out. Uh, it's on D- Disney Plus at the moment. And then in terms of acting, post-1985, after A View to a Kill, he didn't do any further acting. He took a, a quite a big gap out. Um, and he mm. was going to return to the stage, though, in 1989 in Aspects of Love, which is an Andrew Lloyd Webber yes. um, musical. But he he dropped out um, not not too long before opening night because of his singing voice. He just thought it wasn't good enough. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a standard Bond thing, isn't it? Everyone seems to when when they finish Bond get back to stage for a little bit. It's yeah, interesting about aspects of love actually from reading Gareth Owen's book, um, uh, Roger's personal assistant, um, because he said that him and Roger had quite in depth conversations about whether or not they would address the real reason why he pulled out of aspects of love. Um, because right. I think, I think at the time they said it was due to just a change in mind or a change of heart about who should play the role. Um, but it's bit like you say, it's because Roger didn't think he had it in him to, to, mm. to do the musical. I've actually got a quote here because um, I wasn't sure if we we're going to cover it, but um, yeah. he said, as the opening drew nearer, I started having nightmares and forgetting my lines and having to sing without a note to key me in. I guess it had been many years since I was last on stage, so I was feeling a bit jittery. At the final run-through, I sensed Andrew wasn't happy. Maybe he was having those same nightmares about me, and the long and the short of it was that Andrew didn't want me to open in the show. I was very, very disappointed and felt very sad. Mm. So it was kind of, it seems like it was kind of by mutual consent that he decided yeah. to um, to withdraw. But yeah, I think, if, I'm, if I can remember rightly, the last time he had been on stage was just before he got Bond. So it had been like, God, nearly 20 years since he'd been mm. on stage. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Well, after the break he had in from those films, during the 80s, he actually, of course, did many... Bond films. It was an interesting era for for Roger because he is one of the it's a bit of a rare um, occasion where a Bond actor really covers two decades in quite quite heavily. Mm. He he had pretty much all of the the seventies and quite a big chunk of the the eighties as well. So, um, but in the eighties, he it, things had moved on quite a bit for him. So he'd obviously played Bond for a while. Um, and yeah, it, it, his the Bond role was sort of changing quite a bit over time. In the seventies, he had a—I think we talked about this in the previous one—where he has a he had a three-film deal with Eon um, up until Spy Love Me. So pretty much a, a done deal with those that you know, you know Roger was going to be in all of those films as Bond. But when it came round to Fear Eyes Only, that 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 deal had changed, and he moved on to to a film by film basis. 
And as we know with Roger's um, films, there's always discussions around whether he's actually going to keep doing it each time. Um, probably never more so than for, for Your Eyes Only, where it there was a lot of discussions around if he was actually going to carry on doing doing the role. Um, so he was in negotiations to, to do it, and it didn't look like he was going to do it at that point. Um, and lots of other actors were being discussed to, to take over the role. And many, or all of these we've, we've talked about before, and there's, there's probably more as well, but, uh, Lewis Collins, who was, who played Bodie in the professionals, uh, Ian Ogilvy, uh, who uh, was a- actually played Simon Templar in the return of the saint. Um, Michael Billington, poor, poor Michael, <laughs> Set the uh, press the uh, Billington um, Plaxon. <laughs> uh, so yeah, obviously he was he was still floating about around that time. Um, Michael Jaston, uh, he was uh, he was in a, t- a TV series called Quiller, uh, which I'd never seen before. Um, and 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 Timothy Dalton was around at that point and and in discussions as well for taking on the role. So so there are lots of people talking about of being taken over the the Bond role. Uh, and, and Roger found out that Broccoli and Saltzman were screen testing actors um, and apparently without his knowledge. Um, and around this time, he said he wasn't going to play to play Bond. Um, but eventually they did. They did get him to come back for, for Your Eyes Only. But uh, yeah, so For Your Eyes Only is an interesting one. I'm not going to go into depth about it because you can go back and listen to our full episode on For Your Eyes Only. And we do go into quite a lot of depth with, with that film and the making of it. But Fury Eyes Only was an interesting one because it was a, a, a lot grittier. It was a lot um, more toned down. It had a slightly less budget than some of the the other ones before. Less gadgets, um, less gadgets, and I, it's, it's also when you look at a lot of the reviews of the time and also retrospective ones, it is viewed as being a little bit more of a, a real Bond film as opposed to, to to a lot of the ones that dotted around that era. Interesting. Like um, sorry to interrupt, but I, 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 when Roger died. I only just learned this recently, but they did a double bill of Roger Moore films at the cinema and it was The Spy Who Loved Me and For Your Eyes Only. Um, yeah. They were the two that they chose to sort of represent his his career as Bond, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, well, um, it did get different differing views uh, for Your Eyes Only. So, so Time Out, um, they said no plot and poor dialogue and Moore really is old enough to be the uncle of those girls. Uh, but Raymond Benson... Um, who, of course, wrote a number of Bond, Bond novels, uh, thought Fury Eyes Only was Roger's best Bond film. So a bit of a mix of those. But the age thing in the 80s was a really big deal for Roger. And it, it started to crop up quite a lot in news articles. Uh, and obviously, Fury Eyes Only, they, they, they draw attention to that with uh, B.B. Dahl. And it's something that continues throughout the rest of them, really, that, that theme where he is getting on a bit. And um, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, the, the press do tend to pick up on it quite a bit. Other things about Few Eyes Only, apparently um, Roger had a big fear of heights. Uh, so when they were doing the climbing stuff in Greece, he used to drink quite a lot to calm his nerves before they did it. I uh, thought that was a very Roger thing. But yeah, that's Few Eyes Only. Um, then that moved on to Octopussy in 1983. And again, uh, he's still on this one film at a time deal. So there's lots of discussions around if he would actually do it. And at the time, one of the deciding factors in him actually continuing was never seen ever again. Um, so it, there, there was a chance at that point that he was going to leave the role. But yeah, so with never seen ever again coming on to the scene and um, well appearing at the same time, around the same time as Octopussy, Broccoli obviously put a lot of effort in getting him back because they thought that the only real way that they could compete with never seen ever again was to, to have Roger on board because you can't go up against Sean Connery 
with a with a completely new actor. So they got him to come back, um, and uh, there were there was a lot of talk around uh, the time that Josh Brolin was uh, was already hired to take on the role. I think it's um, James but, Brolin. Was I got, probably 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 James Brolin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not not Thanos. No, no. Well, Josh Brolin would have been good. At, would have been about four. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, but the Chicago tr- tr- Tribune, they gave, uh, they quite liked it. They said they gave the film three out of four stars, uh, saying it was surprisingly entertaining. Surprising because in his previous five Bond appearances, Roger Moore has always come off as a smug stiff. GQ writer David Williams, uh, he said that uh, it's one of the best bad films of the franchise, praising the entertaining characters for finding the silliness and Moore's advanced age problematic. But finding um, the silliness and Moore's advanced age problematic. So you can see that around that time, the age was consistent issue, and they did try and sort of deal with it with um, the female lead in Octopussy being, you know, not his age, but around his age with um, Maud uh, Adams. Maud Adams, yeah. So um, it was something that they were addressing, and um, I think Octopussy is a, a bit of a divisive one, but um, certainly an interesting one in the in, in the Bond storyline. Uh, and then finally, the last one, and that is uh, A View to a Kill, and we've spoken about this many, many times. Um, but of course, this was his last one, and he was 58 when he was um, in A View to a Kill, uh, and he announced his retirement from the role on uh, in December 1985. Yeah, age was a big issue at this one, and I don't think anyone will argue that he should have done another one after that. Um, but uh, I think uh, apparently a lot of people also said that he was he'd quite visibly aged more from uh, Octopussy. Well, he'd had the face work, hadn't he? Yes, he said he'd yeah. had these mole removed, but it was uh, it was a bit more to it than that, wasn't there? I think there'd been some sort of yeah. eye tuck. Um, to, to yeah, be... and it was pretty noticeable. Yeah. But I, I always think that one of the major problems with View uh, to Kill is that they do that scene where he's underwater. Yes, which <laughs> the really, hair, the hair, <laughs> the it's sort of there's no way of putting makeup on somebody to make them look younger when they're underwater mm. so it really draws attention to it and that probably wasn't a good move that one but yeah so uh washington post they, they didn't have many nice things to say uh, they said more isn't just long in the tooth he's got tusks and what <laughs> looks like an eye job has given him the pie-eyed blankness of a zombie Ugh. he's not believable anymore in the action sequences even less so in the romantic scenes it's like watching women fall over gabby hayes and even Sean Connery at the Times was talking about the age. He said uh, Bond should be played by an actor 35 uh, 30 or 33 years old. Uh, I'm too old. Roger's too old too. So, um, yeah, it was a big issue at the time. I think um, um, I think if they you can do an older Bond, it's just they've got to make it apparent that he's an older person, right? Yeah, I think Never Say yeah. Never Again tackles it much better. Yeah. The, um, yeah. the fact he's, yes. he's older. Yeah, yeah. yeah, with his bad yeah, back they're... and his aches and pains and his going to that yeah, retreat think, you know yeah well this is one of the things with the the bond series isn't it that it, it, it's quite hard uh, that's probably around the time where they decided right we need to start taking a few more risks now and pushing things a little bit further and trying something new they weren't really trying a lot new over mm-hmm. the over the whole of um roger's tenure i mean they did go you know a bit more serious sometimes they did try a few things out but they never really changed the character very much they they sort of addressed his age a bit but it was only little tongue-in-cheek references and things like that. It wasn't really like he is an older agent. But what's um, interesting, I think, with Roger in the 80s is that um, cinema was changing so much, um, mm. you know, action cinema specifically. And so actually having Roger as the constant in that era 
it was kind it was almost kind of revolutionary really um yeah. in the action cinema is changing but the bond films don't you know we've still got roger moore we've still got the greatest action hero on screen when you yeah. really had you know arnie coming out you had slice uh, sylvester stallone bruce willis all these guys harrison ford um yeah. and we had roger moore still like you know doing his thing yeah um so in a way i think roger being older and being the constant was weirdly like yeah quite revolutionary yeah. in, in a sense well, I think that if you look at it in terms of the Craig era, the Craig era, it's all about him getting older. Yes. That's, that's, the story develops as he gets older. The Moore era, it doesn't develop as he gets older. So he does get older and he's a constant. But It's almost he's hermetically sealed, isn't he? He's sort of... Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, imagine, imagine if, if uh, No Time to Die, they, they pretended that... Daniel Craig was the st- still the same age that he was in Casino Royale. It would it would look ridiculous. Still get um, learning his uh, role, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, more talked to, talked a bit about A View to a Kill. He says it's his least favorite Bond film. One of the things that he he was mortified to find out is that he was older than his female co-star's mother. And he also, I think we talked about this on the um, on on the episode, but the he does talk quite a lot about the sort of the content of the film as well so like the machine gunning scene where zorin's just mm. mowing down people he wasn't very didn't really like that um just he just didn't feel like that was bond he felt that it was a bit too violent um and that the, the sort of bond series was wasn't really you know sticking with that the the rules that they'd set with it and what people liked about it so he wasn't very pleased on that uh, yeah but like the, make, um... making a quiche sort of cancels that out doesn't it it brings it back down <laughs> well that, I, well yeah that, that's that's um, probably the easiest way to get it past the censors yeah but we've got a quiche's <laughs> quiche scene oh yeah go on go through um so yeah so um yeah so there you go that's the 80s for bond films in him in 1987 he also he hosted um happy anniversary 007 which was uh, a, a series that well, an episode i think it was a tv episode but you can't get it i remember when i used to rent the bond films from the local video shop that was part of the collection and it was roger moore just presenting you know scenes from the older bond films in, eight, um, in 87 so what's that 25 year at 25 anniversary uh, 25th anniversary yeah. yeah so yeah if you can dig that out that's quite a good one but i think it's quite hard to find nowadays uh, so yeah, there you go. That's that's, and then and that takes us to the end of of Roger's tenure. Yeah, very interesting. Um, let's quickly just touch upon his personal life because, um, as we mentioned in the first episode, we're doing this one slightly differently to our other actor episodes. We've done those ones sort of beat by beat, but there's just so much to talk about with Roger Moore. We've sort of broken it down into sections. But one thing to say about Roger's personal life is that, you know, he didn't like to talk a lot about his personal life. So we'll just basically just touch upon the basics of his um, relationships. Uh, So his first marriage was to a lady called Dawn von Stein, who was an ice skater who he met after leaving RADA. Um, Despite the name, she was English and her name was Lucy, real name was Lucy Woodward. She was actually six years older than Roger and um, had already been married and divorced when they met. So they married uh, at Wandsworth Registry Office in 1946. Does that name a ring a bell, Wheatley? Oh, I've been to a a wedding at that registry office. Whose wedding? Wasn't uh, probably not as good as uh, Roger's. Yeah, it was yours, wasn't it? It was mine. Yes, got the. Yeah, if you if you you didn't know that, didn't know that side. That would have been fantastic if you'd have told me at the time. I would have definitely would have been yeah much more much more enthusiastic. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Roger then met Dorothy Squires, um, who was a very famous singer at the time. This He met her while he was still with Dawn and they met in 1952 and she was 12 years his senior. Um, Dawn was abroad when he, Roger met Dorothy and when she returned, she was told that uh, he'd met another woman and she sued for divorce in 1953. And when they finally got divorced, Roger married Dorothy later that year. Dawn also sued him in 1955 for maintenance arrears um, when he was starring in the film Diane. Um, so they were married for seven years. Uh, it's quite sad, really. He thinks that if they'd managed to have children together, they might have stayed together longer. But unfortunately, they, that didn't happen for them. And then in 1961, uh, while still married to Dorothy, Roger met a lady called uh, an Italian actor called Luisa Mattioli while they were filming uh, in Rome, a, fil uh, a film called The Rape of the Sabines. And they began having an affair behind Dorothy's back. So it would actually be seven years before Dorothy filed for divorce. And during that time, Louisa and Roger actually started living together as man and wife and having children together. So it's quite a tragic relationship, that one. Um, Dorothy actually took Roger and Louisa to court um, and a judge ordered Roger to return to his married home, which he refused to do. So they eventually divorced in 1969. So this was all going off when um, Roger was at the peak of his uh, fame in The Saint. So this was quite a big scandal at the time. Um, so after divorcing in 69, Roger married uh, Louisa. That was his third marriage. But interestingly, with Dorothy Squires, I think there was a lot of affection there for her. And um, he actually paid for her hospital bills after having, she had cancer in 1996. Um, but she sadly died in 1998. So together with Louisa, Roger had three children, Deborah, Jeffrey and Christian. And they were, you know, happy family while throughout the Bond uh, tenure, basically. So it was him and him and Louisa. And she was you know, at all the premieres and what have you. Um, and then Roger and Louisa separated in 1993. This was after Roger developed feelings for a Swedish born socialite called Christina Th Tholstrup. Um, and they, she was actually friends with Louisa. So this caused quite a big rift between Roger and his family, his children specifically. But they all later reconciled uh, later on. Obviously, just quite a messy thing to go through. But they, um, Roger and Louisa divorced in 2000 and Roger married Christina in the year 2002. And they were together until he died, which we'll get to shortly. But yeah, that was like the sum of his his relationships. Yeah, but there he's got three three children: Deborah, Jeffrey, and Christian. Deborah obviously he made a cameo in Die Another Day, and I believe Jeffrey and Christian are both working in the film industry, or they were. Um, I think they've had um, restaurants and things like that as well. So uh, yeah, I think they um, sort of were set up for a for a you know a, a good life by Roger's fame and fortune. So on to the 90s. So like we talked about, he had a gap. But when he made his return, he was in an episode of a of a show, a TV series that's called My Riviera. And it was just him as himself showing the sights of Monaco. And in terms of films, in 1990, it was in a film called Fire, Ice and Dynamite. Playing a fantastic. character called George Windsor. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's not fantastic. It's awful, right. awful film. It's directed it's directed by Willie Bogner. Yeah, mm. um, it, uh, yeah. I was going to say. I think it was like a way of him demonstrating his all his skills that he'd done for creating action on on the snow. I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, yeah. it looks. Some of the scenes look good. It's basically it's like Cannibal Run on ice. Ah, which is rat race on ice. 
that what you're yeah. saying? <laughs> yeah, 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 basically, yeah. Um, also in 1990 was Bullseye, um, where it, which is a action comedy with Michael Caine, which was directed by Michael Winner about con men. Have either of you seen this? No, I'm looking at a picture of it now. Yeah. Um, it does not look like a 90s film. It looks like it's 1965. Yeah, it's got a cameo by Jim Bowen as well. I'm not explaining that to the it's transatlantic supposed to be awful, viewers. It's isn't it? I've heard it's, it's, got awful. Cult, it's got a cult following, apparently. Four, four and a half stars on the IMDb. Um, but Roger said Bullseye wasn't a bad film. It wasn't the greatest either, but it did have funny moments. It was huge fun to make. And I think my blind piano tuner was one of the funniest things I've done on film. I love dressing up. Having not seen that, I think I'll have to, to dig that out. He was in a 96 film called The Quest. Yes. Yes. Have you seen that? John Claude Van Damme. Right, so yeah, this is what so in Gareth's episode, Gareth Owen, his assistant, talked about his um the problematic relationship he had with John Claude Van Damme and it was on this film, um, The Quest, that that, that arose. Um so you've seen this. Oh yeah, I, I remember really looking forward to it. There was a massive marketing campaign about it at the time. It was peak uh John Claude Van Damme um mm. popularity. It was not a very good film in the slightest, but it did, they did a lot of marketing, so people watched it. John Claude Van Damme directs it, right? Did yeah. you say that already? Uh, yeah. yeah. No, I didn't say it already, but yeah, he he directed it cause, just because he wanted to. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. Um, and then in 1997, this is the one we've been waiting for, isn't it? He, he played the chief in Spice World. Yes. yes. That's the one we've been waiting to talk about for two episodes. Um, and he... He was invited to the launch of Channel 5 in the UK in 1997. And while he was there, he got a knock on the door of his, his office. And he was in a little tiny dressing room and he, there he was. And there was a knock on the door and they said, can we talk to you? It was five five girls. He said, sure. I had no idea who they were, but I realised there must be the girl band. We're going to make a film, one said. Will you be in it? Sure, I'd love to, I said, not taking them very seriously. Will you send me a signed picture, said another. What's your name, I asked. Victoria. I felt such a fool when a few months later the Spice Girls were topping the charts. The next thing I knew, my London agent, Dennis Sillinger, called to say that they'd sent a script and wanted me for a day's filming. He told me how much they offered. Wow. Let's just say I didn't have to think for long. So that must have been quite lucrative. Spice Girls at the, the peak of their powers at that point. But he, he got his scene only took a day. Um, but he he praises Richard E. Grant for coming in and reading in when he didn't have to because he's not actually on screen uh, with him but he decided to so then in 1997 he makes a, a cameo in the saint as mm. a radio newsreader um, <clears throat> as si- simon templar is driving away in the i actually quite like that film since from, i think we watched didn't we butler well, I've it's got, it's got yeah orbital soundtrack I, I remember liking the the the, the version of the the orbital version of the of the theme song, yeah. but uh, it's Val, Kil- Val Kilmer, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I, remember, I have no recollection of what happens in it. Well, he said it was pretty disastrous in terms of making it, because like, they'd got him on board. Um, it was meant to be Son of the Saint, so it was originally going to feature Roger Moore as an ageing Simon Templar, and he'd found out he's got a, an Ill- illegitimate son. But yeah. um, it's, it's a classic 90s. It's <clears> ridiculous. <throat> it's, it's like all that. It's like the, you know, the Avengers and all those mm-hmm. things. So he he actually got paid for that the original role, but obviously only appeared as a cameo. So yeah, that's that's the nineties. Well, he uh, carried on after the nineties, but um, I'd say it wasn't the 
the peak of his career. One of the first things he did was a film called The Enemy. And The Enemy is, I've never, most of these films I've had to watch trailers of and read about to find out what they are. Uh, It's about uh, a CIA agent and a geneticist uh, trying to stop some biological weapon from being stolen. It's got Luke Perry in it. Uh, and Roger Moore plays, I think he plays the baddie in it, who's got, who's trying to get the weapon. There's, a, there's, a, he's done a few sort of like foreign films that I've never heard of. One is called On Our Own Vesna, and that was in 2002. Uh, but then things start to really heat up in in uh, his um, 2000s career when he did Boat Trip, <laughs> uh, which I think Boat Trip is one of those interesting ones. I, I think I always get it mixed up with Rat Race, but. Um, it's essentially a, a film about two men that go on a, a cruise and to to pick up women, and it's a, a gay cruise. So it's generally a, a very every joke is just about gay men trying who find them attractive who sort of chase them around the boat. But they have to one of them has to pretend to be gay uh, because he's trying to pick up a woman who is on the boat because she's trying to avoid straight men. It's very very clever. Um, but Roger plays sort of an aging um, gay guy who's on this cruise who basically fancies one of these men and he's always flirting with them. It is, from an actor's perspective, Roger's brilliant in it. Mm. He's really, really good. But from a film perspective, it's 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 a, it's a tricky film to watch. Um, but there's a, a, there's a one scene, and Brendan, you sent this to us earlier, where uh, <laughs> Roger is um, flirting with one of the men and... Um, licks a sausage um which is fantastic acting really good acting um but not not a very nice nice scene uh but that's boat trip uh probably not one i'm gonna ever revisit ever again there's a thing he did called the fly who loved me and this is like a unicef short film i think and he sort of just does a a voice of santa claus in it um you can watch it's only about five minutes long you can watch that one on youtube uh, then he does some. Some of these are quite hard to actually research to find out what they are. Uh, what, what, there's one called uh, "Here Comes Peter Cottontail," which I think is like an animated film, um, not an animated film that anyone's probably ever seen. Um, then there's another one he did. Oh, so this one's interesting. Agent Crush. Agent Crush is basically Roger Moore's. Uncle Billy. Um, <laughs> Sir, Sir, Sir Billy. Billy. Get it right. Sir Billy. Well, yeah, I'm not going to get the name right. Uh, Agent Crush. It's, it looks like, honestly, if you're not, I, I think I'd sent you a link to this earlier. If, if, if you're listening to this and you. Can I just describe how it, what I thought it was? Um, yeah. I thought it was like um, Thunderbirds, but like someone had made deliberately bad puppets. Mm. It, I think it's like a Team America thing, but, but not done as well. No. With no it's like a British British team America, but it looks like spitting image characters. It's, they're really quite scary, the characters. It's a really weird looking film. I'd never heard of it in my life. I think it's around that same time where puppets were quite, you know, quite cool. Around the same time as like Team America and stuff were coming out. Um, but yeah, he just plays, uh, he's got, uh, um, I, can't, I don't think he's got a big role in it. Um, but yeah, uh, probably just watch the trailer if you're listening to this. Don't, you probably won't want to watch it. Uh, he did a film called The Wild Swans, um, which I think that's a foreign film, and I couldn't find any clips of him in it from the bits I was watching on YouTube. Then he was in Cats and Dogs: The Revenge of Kitty Galore. Ooh. Now you've got children, Butler. You've probably watched this. No, I remember. Oh, no, actually, this is. I remember watching the very t- first Cats and Dogs film. Yeah, but that was before I had children. I don't know why I was watching it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, he plays uh, Tab Lazenby in that film. I'm assuming it's some sort of dog that's a spy. Well, Tab would make a cat, surely. Cat Tab, Tabby, Tab. Oh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I've not, I've not gone into too much depth thinking about <laughs> thinking about these films, but yeah, he's uh, sort of picking up those voice roles, playing Bond characters. A film called The Lighter. Uh, that looks like quite a well-respected one, actually. That's a bit of an art housey one. A Princess for Christmas. Yes. He plays the Duke of Castlebury. Have you seen that? Is that one of those? No. Channel Five Bonds. The, well, this is the one that he starred in with uh, Sam Ho- Sam Hoyen, Sam Hewen. Um, right. who uh, Roger was a big fan of and he's in Outlander now and he's being tipped as a contender uh, for Bond that's who Gareth yes. chose as his choice for Bond so that's the uh, connection there but um, it looks like a Hallmark movie um, yeah. I'd quite like to see it actually um, but he, mm. he injured himself quite badly on that film I think um, they dropped something on his foot or he, or he fell over and broke his foot Um and that was part of his illnesses that sort of ended up, you know, being the end of him, unfortunately. Yeah, well, you you have a remarkable knowledge on A Princess for Christmas. Yeah. So uh, kudos to you for that. Yeah. Uh, there's a film called uh, The Incompatibles from 2013. Barely find anything out about that one. Uh, a film called The Care in 2016. And then in 2017, he was in The Saint, uh, which is a TV movie, um, basically... Uh, you know the same concept of sort of copying the saint and relaunching it, but it looks it, it's it's awful. It looks it looks. Uh, I didn't I couldn't find him in it. I, I didn't watch the whole uh, movie, but I, in the trailers and stuff, I didn't see him in it. Um, but yeah, I don't think that did particularly well. Uh, but also in he did some of the TV work around the time as well. So he was in an episode of Alias. I've never watched that. Yeah, well, there's actually time. a really good interview of him on the set of Alias on YouTube. Mm. Well worth a look because you get a bit of candid Roger Moore before they start the interview. So check that out. Oh, nice. Okay. Mm. Uh, did a um, TV series called Tatort, uh, which I've never heard of, and one called Foley and McColl, which, again, there's not a lot of information on that um, on the internet. Um, so, yeah, so the uh, 2000s and um, 2010s, few interesting ones in there, but it's always a shame with the Bond actors when they sort of have to pick up these you know, Bond roles as voiceovers in kids' films and stuff like that. But yeah, definitely, definitely check out Agent Crush if you get a chance. <laughs> for, yeah, prepare to have your nightmares haunted for a while. Yeah. Well, and he said, trip. in terms of these sort of roles, he said the reason he took them on, it was part of his UNICEF um, ambassadorial role that he oh. took these on to keep himself sort of relevant. Um, right. So he could do it alongside and, and he's still he's still an actor, you know, so he's, mm. it enables him to promote it. Yeah. I, do, I do feel like, I mean, beyond Spice World, which I think um, is the sort of thing he could be doing, he did sort of get left behind a little bit by the film industry, by mm. by the sounds of it, in the in the UK. Um, I'm sure, like, I don't know, had he been working today, I don't know. I feel you feel like he would be in things, right? In in good things, appearing in Doctor Who and stuff like that. But um, uh, I don't know. I think it's a tough one. I think um, you know, Roger. He's he's one of the most likable men in movies. People loved him because he was like, you know, he was a nice guy and he was fun to watch and stuff like that. But he wasn't like Connery, was he? Where Con- people wanted Connery and Connery did, Connery did stuff like Finding Forrester and things like that, where uh, you know it was really in depth stuff. Where I'd, Roger probably never really, you know, never really focused on that side of it. 
um yeah. so so he was more of like the entertainment side of it as uh, which definitely seems to come across in, in in the later roles that he was picking up. Yeah, I guess Roger spent, uh, having had a really big, big, busy career before Bond, almost mm. Bond was the crescendo of everything. Mm, Whereas yeah. for Connery, Bond kept, Bond was the springboard for everything else, yes. wasn't it? Yeah, um, that's true, yeah, yeah. And Connery's best work, I mean, Beyond Bond, came much later on, didn't it, in the in the 90s? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not an... Un, uh, we often do likenesses between Brosnan and Roger because they they were quite similar in the way that they you know they were very likable and well the peers still is but the they ha- I think they have a lot of similarities in what they've done post bond yeah um in the films that they've they've picked up and we talk a lot about you know uh, peers doing like an older bond or th- things like that but he does tend to pick up a lot of these sort of princess for Christmas films and, and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so I don't know if it's just because when you get to a certain point in your career after Bond, the, the type of Bond you are and the type of actor you were during that, it really does define what you get after it. Yeah, I guess maybe there's that whole sort of being a movie star, which Roger undoubtedly was, mm. and being like an actor, you know, like someone yeah. like, I'm thinking like Brian Cox, um, yes. who is... Yeah of i don't know how old he is but he gets good meaty roles because he is a great actor right mm. um yeah. and, and Ro- no disrespect yeah. to roger obviously roger was a very good actor at what he did but he was undoubtedly like you know the the leading man movie movie star type yeah he's the, he's the hollywood star he's the big name he was one of the biggest actors in the world at one point for what he did mm. um but he he brought money in didn't he for action films he was he was the action star of his generation yeah. and maybe that just doesn't transfer as well to those actors that sort of get the meteor roles and throughout their career. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the Brosnan comparisons are fair, but like Brosnan has had a quite a decent career post-Bond. I mean, the Mamma Mia films for a start. Yeah, but Roger would have done that, wouldn't he? Yeah. If, it, if it was in, in, in the same, in the right age for it, that would have been spot on for him. Yeah, that's um, true. So yeah, Brosnan did get quite lucky with that one. But but yeah, there's, yeah, there's some film, good things he has done, but he definitely has got a, a similarity to some of the stuff that Roger got after, after Bond. Mm. Coffee. Medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. What's the matter? I don't feel so good. I feel so sleepy. Damn coffee. Is that all it does? Okay, um, so let's just talk about uh, Roger's illness um, because this is something uh, just to touch upon here. He was a self-confessed hypochondria, but um, as you know, even hypochondriacs often become uh, ill themselves, and sadly that is that is true with Roger. So, in 1993, uh, Roger was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, he'd had two rounds of tests and both had come back clear, but he's waiting for the results of the third. While he was waiting for the results of the third test, his doctor actually turned up his, at his door 
to tell him that he had cancer and, that would, and he would require surgery, which he then had in L.A. This is a quote from his uh, biography. I said, I tumbled over and over into a well of self-pity and anger. It was a sight of my body limping its way to the bathroom with a great plastic bag attached to, my, uh, to the other end of the garden hose that gave me the despair of inadequacy. So from that cancer, um, uh, he made a full recovery. Um, but like I said, he was, uh, in his own words, a closet hypochondriac. And as we touched upon um, in the first episode, he had had a lot of health problems throughout his mm. life. And one of those being the recurring problems that he'd had with kidney stones, um, which we discussed when we talked about Live and Let Die. In 1961, at the age of 34, when he was filming uh, Gold of the Seven Saints in the desert, he had to have kidney stone removed surgically. And then before that... Be- Obviously, we talked about this in the first episode, but he was born before the vaccination era. So as a child, he had measles, mumps, chicken pox. And then he had that bout of pneumonia when he was aged five and had had like antibiotics were just not available at that point. So he had to be like wrapped in creams and um, wraps. Mm. And apparently these creams um, burnt his skin. Um, And the doctors told him that he would have to have a death certificate. He would have a death certificate with him when he returned in the morning. But after the fever dropped, uh, he actually recovered in the morning. And then we talked about him having all these bits and bobs removed. So he'd had tonsils, adenoids and appendix removed. There there was a time when he was filming Gold in South Africa where he had been um, exposed to a large doses of arsenic in the water in the mines. (laughs) Apparently he turned a dark grey colour. And then apparently he also had shingles when he was filming The Spy Who Loved Me. I've never noticed it before, but apparently there's scenes where his face is quite swollen. But that was all earlier on. So so later in his life, in 2003, at the age of 78, he collapsed while dancing in a show on Broadway and had to be fitted with a pacemaker. So that was, I believe, I'm going to get this wrong now, something to do with the two Ronnies. Um, It was a was it the play that goes wrong or something like that? I can't think what it was called. But anyway, he was doing this thing where he would do the guest appearance in this play. Um, yeah, and he collapsed, had a pacemaker. And then uh, in 2013, he had a very serious case of pneumonia and was diagnosed with diabetes as well at the same sort of time. So as you can see, as he was getting older, he was getting more frail and illnesses, but it never stopped him from working. And we'll go on to now probably his most passionate project, Post Bond. Yeah, UNICEF. Something he was introduced to by Audrey Hepburn in 1991. And he, he says that she she had basically had a chat and said, oh, do you want to come along and do this, uh, do this thing, do a talk? And he, he said, I, don't, I can't be, I don't know what to say. And she just said, they'll, they'll basically ask you about movies. And, and she was right, they did. And whilst in Geneva, he said, I talked to Peter Ustinov, a long-time ambassador, and lunched with one of the great minds of UNICEF, the executive director, James Grant. I knew that I wanted to help, but how? Mr. Grant asked me to meet him in New York. So they met in New York, he had a chat, and then they they sold UNICEF to him. They spoke with the the passion that Audrey Hepburn had had shown, and he said, I didn't need any further persuading, I wanted to get involved and help. So his first um, mission was to go to Central America in 1991, and he visited the projects they were working on in Costa Rica, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala... He met with the politicians, the presidents and the government officials and he saw the work that they were doing and um, see how the help could be further made. On the back of this, he was then made UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador. So then he would, this would be his role from then on uh, within UNICEF. Something that um, we spoke about with Gareth is something that he was 
hugely passionate about and, and reserved uh, a big chunk of the shows that they, they did whilst they're on tour uh, to talk about and promote. In October 2012, he hosted a, a charity auction of Bond memorabilia, uh, which was held on Global James Bond Day. And that raised £723,600 for UNICEF. Wow. The next month, he was given the UNICEF UK Lifetime Achievement Award, which has gone on to be known as the Roger Moore Lifetime Achievement Award. He said, I am perhaps best known for my role as Bond, but my role as Goodwill Ambassador for UNICEF is the one that I'm certainly most passionate about. It is beyond doubt that it's the children and dedicated staff on the ground who deserve medals. But I'm absolutely honoured and would like to thank UNICEF for this truly humbling award. So moving on from that, he obviously got loads of people involved. I think Gareth Gareth listed a few that he'd got involved since since he started in '91. Ewan McGregor is somebody he brought on board, and he he said thank you, Roger, for having championed so tirelessly for the rights of children for the last 26 years. You introduced me to UNICEF over a decade ago, and have been an inspiration to all of us. So yeah, the latter stage of his life, from 91 all the way up to his death, he um, he was proudly representing UNICEF, and uh, that it was that that got him his knighthood um, in 2003. Much deserved. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, he actually got, uh, in 1999, he he got the commander of the Order of the British Empire, he got his CBE then, um, in the New Year's honours, but then, yeah, in 2003, 2003 he was promoted to um, his, his knighthood, and that was largely for his charitable services, as opposed to acting roles, uh, mainly around UNICEF, but also uh, reference to, uh, I think it's Kiwanis, uh, Kiwanis International, which is a charity for... Uh, like um, kids, communities around the world, um, and improving the lives of various places um, that he would get involved with. So, so yeah, he got his knighthood then, and he said about that that it gave him the worst attack of stage fright that he'd ever had in his life. Um, and he was, he said, I was worrying about whether I was going to get up again after kneeling. Because uh, at the time, obviously, he was seventy-five. But I, I've, I've read as well that um, he talks about it, and um, he says uh, it meant far more to him than it if he'd got it for acting. I was proud because I received it on behalf of UNICEF as a whole and for all of it, all it has achieved over the years. So that was nice that you know he got he, he got his knighthood for something that he really cared about, all the work that he'd done with charity. So um, yeah, and I, I'd always remember the, the, the picture of him picking up his knighthood. It, it looks very very um pleased with himself mm. yep so something we talked about with gareth owen that was on a previous episode if you want to hear uh, our interview with um roger's personal assistant uh, executive assistant um for many many years um we talked with him about the books that roger uh wrote later in his life and also the tours that he went on so um just touch upon that here so after writing the live and let die diary back in 1971 Uh, Roger had been asked many, many times about writing an autobiography and he actually did start writing one in 1992 um, and he'd written about 6,000 words when his laptop and bag were stolen in Geneva Airport. So that version was lost. And so I think that kind of, he felt like, I think that put him on the back foot with it really. But in 2008, Mm. he he relented. Like I said, working alongside uh, his executive assistant, Gareth Owen, he wrote and published my word is my bond and from what we understand those books were written by you know roger and gareth having conversations about his life 
um, then being recorded and Gareth would write the drafts of the chapters and then they would be sent over to Roger. Roger would make changes and blah, blah, blah. And I think, from what I understand, I think the only chapter that Roger really wrote on his own was the one about his childhood because I think he wanted to relive that experience himself and really sort of um, throw himself into that. So, uh, hmm. yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, so the, my word is my bond was followed in 2012 by Bond on Bond, um, which is Roger's reminiscences about the Bond films and also all the other Bonds and the Bond girls and the Bond gadgets. And that's a really fun read, actually, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Then he wrote his sort of Tales from Hollywood uh, memoirs, The Last Man Standing in 2014. Um, that's a great one. That's really good, yeah. And that talks about his experiences on in, in Hollywood um, and has anecdotes about Niven, about Elizabeth Taylor, like all the people that he worked with and, and, and met. And um, that's the book I interviewed Roger for in 2014. Mm. So, um, yeah, that'll always have a, a, a big place in my heart. I wonder whether I can find the audio transcript of that interview. I'll have to see if I can uh, dig through my archives. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. That. And then finally, his last book, A Biento, was published in 2017. And that was just sort of his, it's quite a slender book, that one. That's his sort of musings on the meaning of life and stuff like that. So, um, mm. but yeah, so um, just a quick extract here from My Word is My Bond. It says, when I have nothing nice to say about a person, I'd rather not say anything at all. Unless pushed to say a few words by my editor, why give them publicity, I say. No, I'd rather fill these pages with words about me. This is, after all, a book about me. A suave, modest, sophisticated, talented, modest, debonair, modest and charming individual of whom there is much to write. So it's quite funny. Classic, yeah. <laughs> Classic yeah. Roger. Yeah. And so uh, there was a Roger Moore retrospective at the Barbican, which had a, a Q&A uh, with Roger. Um, and for that... Uh, they looked at getting Barry Norman to interview Roger, but Roger actually said, I don't, I don't, whether, whether he was not available, but he said, no, Gareth Owen can do it. Um, and so Gareth did a Q&A with Roger after a screening of The Man Who Haunted Himself. And that was where the idea came to take in his, his books and his memoirs and his, and his anecdotes on the road on tour. So in 2012, Roger went on tour, uh, an evening with Roger Moore, to promote the book Bond on Bond. And then he went on tour again in 2013. Um, and yeah, and in 2015 uh, as well. And that tour ended his final live performance at the Royal Festival Hall. And you and I went to see him weekly at Richmond? Uh, Kingston. 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 Yeah. I don't know why I thought it was Richmond. Uh, was that in 2015? I think it was earlier than that. I think we went to you think we went to the 2012 one? 2013. I think, yeah, 2015 seems too recent. Yeah, maybe it was. Yeah, because I'd moved yeah. by then. So, yeah, it wouldn't have been then. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it must have been 2012 or 2013. What a night. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic to see him. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't... I, at that time, um, obviously, I didn't really... Well, you spoke, you've, you guys have met Gareth now. You've spoken to him. But we didn't really know who Gareth was at the time. So, um, God, yeah, but it would have been amazing to go and see them both talking with, uh, with knowing them now. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm. But I remember it was so busy, wasn't it? Did we have to sit on the floor, or am I imagining that? No, there were people sat on the floor. There were. Oh, people no, we sat were. No, we no, we were. You're right. The whole downstairs thing was was uh, like pillow seating, wasn't it? That was it. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And then uh, we both put inscribed Bond on Bond books. I think didn't we? Oh yes, I've still got that one. Yeah, here. I've still yeah. got that. But I did, he didn't do a sign. Did he do a signing? I don't think he did. Did he? 
No, he just he shot off. I think he made reference to the fact that he was just shooting off afterwards. But <laughs> I, I can't remember where. Yeah, there was just a little, um, just a little error to other books, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'll see when this episode goes out. I'll see if I can find my video of him saying more uh, Bond. Uh, the name's Bond, James Bond, because that is a brilliant clip. Of a, I think it's on. You put it on social at the time, didn't you? I'm sure I think, I've seen that. Yeah, one. yeah, I've got it yeah. somewhere. So I'll see if I can dig that one out and put it out because it is brilliant um, seeing him mm. do that. I think that was obviously the highlight for a lot of people there. But um, but yeah, just an amazing opportunity to see someone like Roger Moore, you know, a true national treasure, just going out and telling his stories. He really was a, mm. a real sort of wit had a good way of telling a telling a spinning a yarn yeah, yeah. shall we say i tell i tell you what i wish uh back then i remember we sat there and i i, I think we asked quite a couple of questions but if if we'd have gone to see it after doing this podcast we'd have been asking we'd have been the only ones asking questions constantly <laughs> yeah what about this what, what do you think about this yeah why Without, it was, there, yeah why did you come back for 1985's a view to a kill <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what was it like working with john glenn and yeah, yeah. it would have been very nerdy so then sadly, he, in 2017, he was having cancer treatment and he had a fall, which meant that he injured his collarbone. So this was, at this point, he was his health was really deteriorating. Um, and then sadly, his family announced his death in Switzerland on the 23rd of May, 2017. And that was from cancer in his lung and liver. And he died at his home. And as covered on the Gareth episode, he he's buried in Monaco rather than in the UK um, because of that tax exile, sadly. So, yeah, that's, but, but a long, well-lived life. Well, yeah, to, to commemorate it, um, they actually set up the Roger Moore stage at Pinewood Studios, uh, and that was at a ceremony that happened in October in 2017 to celebrate his life and work. Um, not just because he'd made a load of films there, but also he had an office there it was it was yeah. home from home for him really so yeah for 40 years he'd worked worked on at pinewood for various things and, ha- and he had his office there from 1970 uh, and at, at the ceremony to open it they that yeah, michael g wilson was there barbara broccoli was there they had loads of guests joan collins michael kane steve fry tim rice stephanie powers and yeah it's one of the it's one of pinewood's newest uh, stage is one of the biggest uh, the second largest actually on the site and uh it still still has workshops around it as well uh 50 foot high apparently uh and uh her royal highness the uh, countess of uh wessex opened the stage uh and it would have been roger moore's 90th birthday weekend mm. which is nice yeah, yeah. Love to see it. I've seen it in person. Um, I sneakily was went to see the set of the Eternals, the Marvel film, and it was the only. It was the only time I dared get my phone out to take a picture. Was walking across the the lot and seeing yeah. the Roger. Well, Moore I bet stage. you prefer to see the Roger Moore stage than <laughs> going to see the Eternal. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to. I don't want to sound ungrateful, but um, seeing the Roger Moore stage was a lot more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so that about wraps up our episode on Roger Moore. But um, like. Well, but let's let's kick things off uh, in this section just by um, I just want to ask you two, what's your favourite, maybe your top three Roger Moore James Bond films if you had to choose? Go on, Brendan. It's the first three, I think, for me. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I, I think they're the the ones that are the most fun. He's in he's in his prime in terms of his age. He's the right age for the part at that point, and it's sort of it's building up towards the spy love me. I think Spy Love Me is fantastic, mm. um, and I'm I'm willing to forgive a lot of the issues with uh, both the first two. 
because uh, there are some really fun moments in both of them. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm with you on those. But what I would say is I do love looking out. So if you know, if you if you sat down, and you go, "What are the best films?" That's it's probably those those three. But I I do love Roger in some of the older ones. I think a certain part of the charm of Roger is what he was like in the older <laughs> films as well. You mean because, the later ones? Yeah, the later films. Yeah, yeah not the older ones. Um, but so so yeah, in those later ones, he. Yeah, the films is probably not as good. The story's a bit ridiculous, but Roger's just fantastic in him, isn't he? Just as Roger, not necessarily within the film, but he's just classic Roger, funny. He just hold, holds his own, and he's just lovable in all of them. I think he's, uh, yeah, I definitely, I'd, I'd be tar- I'd, I definitely think the first three are the best technically, but yeah, I, I do love Roger in all of them. Yeah, uh, for me, I would say Spy Love Me. I mean, that's top three Bond films of all time for me. Um, and then Live and Let Die, I've got a lot, a lot of time for that one because, mm-hmm. um, well, as we discussed recently, the iconography of that film is just terrific and he looks incredible in that movie. Yeah. It's just a mm-hmm. very, very memorable film, I think. And then I think I'm going to book the trend just slightly and go for Moonraker over... Oh, I knew you were going to say that. The Man with the Golden Gun... Just because it's got some space in it. I uh, I just got a real soft spot for Moonraker. I don't know what it is. I think it's just because I think the more of the Bond films, the more like I immerse myself in. I, I like the ones that are over the top. Mm. I like them. The, the the more outlandish, the better. I think. And Moonraker is certainly that. I mean, it's it's basically a retread of You Only Live Twice, right? But there's just a lot to enjoy. There's, a, there's it's a fun movie to 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 stick on and um and watch and we'll be covering that film uh, very very soon on this podcast and it's one that i'm really excited to to get stuck into but i think those three for me but Mm. but yeah i mean in terms of roger moore's era and the importance of it to the for the bond films i just i don't think you can understate it i know not everyone is a fan of the roger moore films or roger moore's take on bond i i think that that roger moore his legacy to the bond series is he showed that it could be done a completely different way and still yeah. be successful. Mm-hmm. And and regardless of what type of Bond you like, the fact that you know he he was almost the anti Connery in many ways, but it, it, he was still very popular. So it just it's just it's massively important. So like you know if we get a new Bond in this year, he could be a Roger Moore type, mm-hmm. and and it's yeah. all down to Roger Moore that that that, that could happen. And I, and you know in some ways I think that it's time for that. It, yeah, it's that whole, um, what does um, Edgar Wright say? It's the milk chocolate, dark chocolate theory, isn't it? You need one that's darker and more bitter. Yeah. And then you need one that's a bit softer and a bit sweeter just to sort of mm. to mix things up. Yeah. And we've had, you know, we've had a long 15 long years of the bitter chocolate of Daniel Craig. And that's no disrespect to Daniel Craig or his films because I do like them. Um, yeah. But I feel like we we all need a bit of Roger Moore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's 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 the t- film series that stick to one type of character have a shelf life. Yeah, because you get yeah. bored of that over mm-hmm. time. You, like, you know, with the Bourne films, there's a you know they stopped at a certain point because nobody wanted them anymore. But the Bond films exist because they're not like that. They're not stuck in those rules. And Roger was the, probably the most important Bond actor that showed that. Yes, yeah. you can yeah. have the levity, but also the thrills. Um, mm. And I like I know I often say this, but I think I feel like the Bond films could move in a in in a 
like the Marvel films, I know it's, I don't like to, to reference them, but they showed that you can have action superhero movies that aren't necessarily dark, but, you mm. know, have have a bit of an edge to them, but can be fun, can be funny, have lighthearted moments. And I think that's something that, again, the the, the James Bond films would not have without Roger Moore. Um, yes. Yeah, I just, I, I just think Marvel films need more pigeon double takes in. Cause it's, <laughs> it def, definitely in the multiverse, there's got to be some pigeons that are doing double takes. Yeah. And, and, and also the fact that he was able to bring Bond from that point in the early 70s, take it through the 70s. Mm. maintain its relevancy well into the 80s as well. Mm. Yeah. It takes a lot more than one person to to make the bonds. Mm. But it the, yeah. the 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 as we always just say is he's like the England manager, isn't he? It's like the yeah. the, mm. the 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 success of it rests on his shoulders in a way. Yeah. So But I I'd, I'd say one of the things about Roger is that he got he got away with a lot in his films because he was so likable. Yes. Mm. People just people just liked Roger. That's why so many people just wanted to see him speak. That's why he did a great job at UNICEF because people just just by being Roger, people loved him, and that, that you probably wouldn't get away with that if uh, over the, that two decade span, if you didn't, you know, the act was okay, but you really didn't love him that much. So it's a big testament to just Roger being Roger that is really sort of the Bond series has continued for so long. Yeah, I guess it's that persona, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and-, and he loved it, and you could tell he loved it. That was the beauty of it, like. Sean Connery didn't love it at a certain point and people knew that you could tell it and it really did affect people's view of watching the films but with Roger he always loved it there was no just you know just being Bond he loved signing autographs loved talking to people about it which was a real refreshing thing for that period yeah definitely very much so so um, our next episode hang on hold your horses there go on hold your horses I've got one final thing yeah right oh um, and whether it's true or not, I just wanted to say it because I think it's great. And I don't know if we've done it before. The Magnum Ice Cream story, we've done that? I've not heard this. Right, so a friend of his, Chrissy Eiley, she said, in the 60s, I was doing an interview for some magazine or other, and I was asked, if you could have one wish to meet one person, ask them a question, what would it be? And he said, I would like to meet Mr. Wall and ask why they don't have a chalk ice with vanilla inside that I, as a child, and put it on a stick. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> basically, he said he got a call from Mr. Walls, who sent him a cake with plain chocolate on the outside and vanilla cream on the inside. But the the point is, twenty years later, they came up with Magnum ice cream. So there is a a, a rumor or like a tale that Roger Moore basically invented the Magnum ice cream. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, t- I'll give it him that. I'm giving, and him I'm that. happy I'm... to give it. Even if it's yeah. not true, I want that to be true so much. Yeah, he, yeah, he brought the world. He brought the world Magnum ice creams and snowboarding. <laughs> because I think it's great. Um, you know, if he said that in the sixties, you know what? He, he's right. Chalk ice yeah. is a nightmare without a stick. I mean, I mean there were probably other people around the time also saying that. <laughs> no, not, it was not, just Roger. It was an alien concept. <laughs> But I just thought it was a nice story. Um, mm. And if we can add fuel to that story, even better. Yeah. Uh, well, you've just reminded me of another great story. So um, I don't want to try and one-up you here. But there is, um, after Roger died, there was this viral um, thing, story that someone shared about Roger, which I'm going to just read out now. So it's it's from this screenwriter, Mark Haynes, who re- met Roger Moore in an airport when um, Mark was seven years old. Yeah. You ready for this? Have you heard this story before? I have, but it's no. great. 
Well, let me read it out for you. As a seven-year-old in about 1983, in the days before first-class lounges at airports, I was at my granddad in Nice Airport and I saw Roger Moore sitting at the departure gate reading a paper. I told my granddad I'd just seen James Bond and asked if we could go over so I could get his autograph. My granddad had no idea who James Bond or Roger Moore were, so he walked over and popped uh, and he popped me in front of Roger Moore with the words, my grandson says you're famous, can you sign this? As charming as you'd expect, Roger asks my name and Julie signs the back of my plane ticket, a fulsome note full of best wishes. I'm ecstatic, but as we head back to our seats, I glance down at the signature. It's hard to decipher, but it definitely doesn't say James Bond. My granddad looks at it, half figures out it says Roger Moore. I have absolutely no idea who that is and my heart sinks. I tell my granddad he signed it wrong, that he's just put someone else's name instead. So my granddad heads back to Roger Moore, holding the ticket, which he's only just signed. I remember staying by our seats and my granddad saying, he says you've signed your name wrong. He says your name is James Bond. Roger Moore's face crinkled up with realisation and he beckoned me over. When I was by his knee, he leant over, looked from side to side, raised an eyebrow and in a hushed voice said to me, I have to sign my name as Roger Moore because otherwise Blofeld might find out I was here. He asked me not to tell anyone that I'd just seen James Bond and he thanked me for keeping his secret. I went back to our seats, my nerves absolutely jangling with delight. My granddad asked if he'd signed James Bond. No, I said I'd got it wrong. I was working with James Bond now. And this is where nice. this is where it takes a really nice twist. You ready? Many, many years later, I was working as a scriptwriter on a recording that involved UNICEF and Roger Moore was doing a piece to camera as an ambassador. He was completely lovely. And while the cameraman was setting up, I told him in passing the story of when I met him at Nice Airport. He was happy to hear it and had a chuckle and said, well, I don't remember, but I'm glad you got to meet James Bond. So that was lovely. And then he did something so brilliant. After the filming, he walked past me in the corridor, heading out to his car. But as he got level, he paused, looked both ways, raised an eyebrow and in a hushed voice said, of course I remember our meeting in Nice, but I didn't say anything in there because those cameramen, any one of them could be working for Blofeld. I was as delighted as th- at 30 as I had been at seven. What a man. What a tremendous Fantastic. man. What a story. L- legend. What an absolute legend. Imagine that. I know. <laughs> So, um, yeah, well, I hope you all enjoyed that uh, little story and um, these episodes on Roger Moore. Like I said, we'll be covering the film Moonraker very, very soon. We'll also be doing an episode on the character M and a special episode where we just answer your questions from the mailbag. So stay tuned for that one. If people want to get in touch with us, how do they get hold of the show? Email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk And on social at James Bond A to Z on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you're not sick of the uh, adverts in the middle already, I just want to remind you that we have a coffee page now at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where if you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee, uh, which we will spend on mint juleps, uh, vodka martinis and Roger Moore books. So, and magnums. Yeah, and magnums. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, anything that you are able to spare would be gratefully received. It all helps us just to keep the podcast going. And, uh, yeah, thank you to everyone who has supported the show so far. We are truly humbled. And also, we've got a uh, T-shirt store as well, which you can find in the show notes uh, for the podcast. So if you want to uh, buy a T-shirt there, um, again, we don't really make much money off that, but uh, it's a good way of supporting the show. So uh, thanks for everyone who's done that so far as well. 
So without further ado, uh, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Cheery bye-bye. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. You get your clothes on, I'll buy you an ice cream. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money.